Welcome to IS's Corporate Solutions ESG Unlocked, a podcast that features engaging and insightful discussions with various ESG experts around the world. I am your host, Pamela Mutomoa. In honor of Black History Month, we are focusing on the S or social of ESG. I will be speaking with two incredible leaders in this area, Paul Francisco and Colin Meadows. Both are incredible examples of who the Black community would identify and celebrate as Black excellence. Paul is the Chief Diversity Officer and Head of Workforce Development Programs at State Street Corporation. Paul currently sits on an array of diverse boards, including nonprofits, councils, and Bentley University School of Business. Fun fact about Paul is that he's a former New England Patriots NFL player and is an active member of the Patriots Alumni Association and the New England Patriots Charitable Foundation. On top of all of that, Paul is one of the co-founders of the New Commonwealth Racial Equity and Social Justice Fund, NCF. He is based out of the Boston, Massachusetts area with his wife and two daughters. Colin Meadows is our second guest, and he is one of the co-founders and managing partner at O15 Capital Partners, which was established in 2022. Prior to co-founding O15, Colin was a senior managing director with Invesco, where he served for 15 years. At Invesco, he held a variety of business and functional leadership roles, including head of Invesco Private Markets, head of Invesco Global Institutional, head of Invesco Digital Ventures, and chief administrative officer. He also served as a director on the board of Invesco Mortgage Capital. Colin is based out of Atlanta, Georgia, with his wife and two sons. Colin and Paul both have credible and incredible experiences to hopefully inspire and enlighten you through our conversation as we honor Black History Month. We will cover some of the work that can be done from a human capital management perspective in the workplace and how that can bring about great value to a company and its people. In addition, how investors can drive change and be part of a rewarding impact investing movement to close the capital access gap facing Black entrepreneurs. Now, before I bring our two guests, I'd like to set the tone regarding the importance of this topic. Let's start by acknowledging the startling fact that the racial wealth gap for Black Americans has persisted in recent decades, but also has grown at a compound annual growth rate of 3% between 2003 and 2018. And according to a report released by the Federal Reserve in September 2020, Black families' median and mean net worth is less than 15% that of white families. And in What Racism Costs Us All by the International Monetary Fund, they estimated that the wealth gap between American whites and Blacks is projected to cost the U.S. economy between $1 trillion and $1.5 trillion between 2019 and 2028, which translates to a projected GDP penalty of 4 to 6% in 2028. Paul and Colin, welcome to ESG Unlocked. I am so thrilled to have you both here with us. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Both of you served as C-suite level executives at the time in 2020 when companies made financial pledges toward racial equity initiatives. 
And when we speak of companies, these were really your peers across industries sitting down with your teams and their respective boards to see the value that there was in making these pledges to, you know, hopefully make a positive social impact. So what I'd like to do here is start our conversation by exploring racial equity in companies from the human capital management context in the workplace. Paul, may you start by clarifying for all listeners the difference between equity and equality? Sure. Thank you, Pam. The way I think about equity and how people use the word equity and equality interchangeably, you know, it's it's not the right way to go about it. To think about equity, think about how the systems have been built to keep certain people from achieving certain things, to keep certain people from having access, uh, and to keep certain people from achieving as much as others, particular groups. And so the concept of equity is rooted in this idea that we need to be fair and just, and that we need to give people the tools and the resources they need in order to get to that equality stage, right? And so equality is really an ideal, right? It's really to say, Everyone should have the same rights, benefits to achieve, the same opportunity to achieve. But the the simple reality is that our systems have not been set up to do that. So therefore, we can't say that uh, we've achieved equality or that we are an equal society when we have a number of us um, who are not as well off, uh, where our uh, total net worth is, you know, a fraction of what the net worth of uh, our white counterparts. And so then you have to begin to question, why is that, right? Right. And how does that happen? And how does that happen over so many years? So when you talk about outcomes, right, in terms of health equity, in terms of safety, in terms of economic prosperity, you can clearly see that there is something wrong in the system that doesn't allow a particular group of people as a whole to really advance in the same manner as others, even though that, you know, we, as a country, we have this ideal that we are all created equal. Great. Colin, what are your thoughts on that? I like the way Paul framed it. Um, and in many ways, so look, I've been at this a long time. So uh, probably coming up on 30 years uh, in industry. And if I dial back to 2020, that was the first time that I can remember at least having an authentic conversation in the corporate sphere mm-hmm. uh, about equity, equality, alignment, all those things. And so in in many ways, it was a seminal event. I I do agree very much with this idea that quality is in many ways, just kind of a goal and a hope. And if we're going to focus on anything, focus on the inputs, which is more on the equity side, and it's really around opportunity and making people feel that they have the same chance to advance, to develop, to get hired in the first place to get funded, depending on the context, that their peers do. And I look, I, I will say, I think we've got, as a society and, and as an industry, a ways to go on that front. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think there's a long way to go. My next question is actually coming into exploring what those opportunities are. When it comes to the workplace, how can companies strive to achieve both equity and equality? What are solutions around that, creating the opportunities, the inputs that, you know, Colin, you use the, the term inputs, Paul, you use the term access. So what it looks like is a multi-pronged approach. It's not one thing that's going to create equality, and it's not one thing that's going to give equity to a particular set of uh, folks who traditionally have been disadvantaged for one reason or another. 
And so what you need to have is a, a willingness to disrupt, really, your policies, your processes, your culture, in order to inspect whether you are actually, in fact, being equitable, whether there are things that are innate, you know, ingrained in the system that prevent people from advancing at the same pace as their counterparts. And so you have to take a look at how you're educating folks around the importance of uh, systemic uh, racism uh, and being an anti-racist type of organization or anti-racist type of culture. You have to give uh, the resources necessary, right, and the community necessary for people to feel a sense that they have ownership, right, and belonging. So, you know, I am not just part of an organization that that I had nothing to do with how it was constituted, constructed, and or how the policies are being carried out, but rather I have a voice and I'm able to change the condition, if you will, to ensure that everyone has the same rights and opportunities. So as organizations that are engaged in this work, I mean, if you want to be really an equitable organization, you have to inspect and you have to hold people accountable, right? You have to measure everything. You have to understand who's advancing, who's not advancing, who's leading your organization, who's coming into your organization, who you're attracting or not, based on how you position yourself and where you position yourself. You have to understand how your employees are feeling around being part of this organization and you have to be able to dissect by demographic. How is that the same or is that different? Why is that? And you have to train, 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 and educate people. This is not work that is, I would say for the faint of heart, it actually, it's, it's hard work. Yeah. It's sometimes the journey, it's a little bit longer than, than what you would like to, but change can only occur when you're really willing to, to be disruptive, to inspect a number of different things and to deconstruct and, and rebuild. Absolutely. I think the terms that really stood out to me when you're describing all of these things is inspect and measure. I think anything that does not get measured does not get done when you're setting a goal. If you can't measure it, you don't know what's going on. So I think that's really important points there. Thank you. Colin, I'd like to get your feedback when it comes to these inputs and creating opportunity, disrupting the status quo. What would you say is the most challenging policy or practice to implement for these positive results in a company? Yeah, that's a good question. Again, I'll dial back to 2020 when a lot of stuff happened. And yeah. I remember that we were launching at my old firm, the Black Professionals Network, and, and this was February of that year. And we invited the mayor of Atlanta to come and talk to the group. And you know, she ended up coming to talk a bit about bringing your whole self to work, which was an unexpected topic, right? And in many ways, unorthodox, right? To, in some ways, corporations are oftentimes built to mask kind of who you are. You're meant to come and do a job and you go home. And, mm -hmm. and, and for many of us, and I'd say this is true for many people of color, we were taught by our parents and mentors historically to mask ourselves. Don't talk politics, don't talk race, don't talk religion. Don't, basically, don't talk about yourself right. uh, work and just kind of get get your work done. And I think, you know, for a time that served us, but ultimately I think that hurts us all because what I think in organizations people really want is they want to feel seen. People want to be appreciated and they want to be rewarded and everything else. They want to feel seen. They want to feel that they are viewed as a contributor beyond just the work that they do every day. They can truly bring their whole selves to work. And so one of the things that I did find quite helpful after George Floyd was this notion of allyship. It was frankly a word that I had not heard before, but there were all these groups that were started afterward. People said, listen, I want to help and groups building up allies, I thought was quite helpful because 
when you're an ally with someone, you, you really are appreciating the whole person and saying, look, how can I help you, you advance, right? Yeah. Not like you as an FTE or, or an employee, but you as a person, how can I help you develop and advance? And it's, it's kind of broad and amorphous, I get it. But I, I do think that ethos was impactful and helpful because for the first time that I can remember, people were actually able to talk about their actual experiences at work. Not just the stuff that they did, but things that happened and things that people may, may or may not have been aware of. And I think that conversation was hugely important. I think it has lasting impacts. Yeah. I also agree. You have to do all the other things in terms of measuring progress and ensuring people aren't kind of falling by the wayside and that folks are getting promoted appropriately and so forth. But I think the the only way you can do that is if you appreciate the whole person in, in real ways. And I'm glad we're finally, at least in my career, finally having that that conversation, you know, for the first time, at least. Absolutely. And I think what resonates there is the term psychological safety, right? Yeah. Being seen and heard creates an environment where people feel psychologically safe. And the results that come from there are collaboration. People actually stay to develop. And that's that's the whole culture part. You know, Colin uh, hit the nail in the head in terms of what some of the challenges are. But more importantly, I think he hit the nail ahead in terms of what some of the opportunities are. And allyship certainly is one of those things that will move the needle and, and we need in order to move the needle. The challenge is that sometimes folks who are not part of the impacted demographic mm -hmm. don't feel that this work belongs to them or don't feel that this work applies to them. And so when you approach the work of inclusion, diversity, and equity, and people, someone standing on the sideline and saying, well, that's just for X, it's not for me then we miss a great opportunity to move this work ahead. So one of the challenges, how do you get someone who is the majority represented population to really be mindful, to really be active in terms of allyship, and to really be cognizant of what they need to do in order to advance the work? What's their personal responsibility with it, right? So that's one thing at the individual level, at the institutional level. The challenges are many, but one of the biggest challenges is if you don't see this as a core value and as a part of your business model. Mm -hmm. And so when you see this as a, as a side thing, as a HR initiative and as a feel good thing, you miss the boat on the plethora of opportunities that having a diversity inclusive workforce brings to the economic vitality that this brings to your business, right? To the innovative things that can happen when you have many different people with different backgrounds, really truly giving you the best selves because they are able to express freely their opinions, their challenges if they see something that's happening that is not, not right, and more importantly, to bring their, their brand ideas to the table. So that's one thing. The other challenge about this work is quite frankly, why you start to see outside environment, outside of corporate, where you starting to see a lot of pushback against uh, a number of initiatives uh, that have to do with ESG or that have to do with inclusion, diversity, and equity. And so you have to guard against not letting that deter you from what you truly need to accomplish uh, yeah. and continue to be focused on how do we get to be an organization that maximizes the value of this work and that, that really thinks about this from an economic perspective. And I think that those are some of the challenges that organizations that are just paying lip service to this work yeah. tend to not do very well. Yeah, that's really great input. I appreciate you guys sharing all of these nuggets. I'd like to take it to another part of our conversation. Another topic that I'd like us to cover is 
access to capital, the challenges that the Black population faces when it comes to access to capital and opportunities. I came across some startling numbers that the Black population accounts for 12.8% of the U.S. population and only 2.4% of businesses are Black-owned. According to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, 70.6% of Black entrepreneurs rely on personal and, and family savings for financing. And then when you consider that there's lower wealth for Black families in the first place, you can see how it is overall driving more of a divide in access to capital. And Colin, I'll start with you. I, I will also say when I was researching the work that you do now since you left your role um, at Invesco in 2022, the story of how you and your partners, Ken and Brian, came up with the name for your investment firm, which you know caters specifically to women and people of color, it really had me so moved. I was in my office here, my home office, and I had to step away because of how moved I was. And I immediately texted my mom and uh, my best friend just so they could share that moment with me. And I really would love for you to share with our listeners the meaning behind the name of 15 and your mission. Sure, happy to. Um, so maybe a little bit about uh, O15 Capital Partners. We're a uh, private equity firm, right? That's focused on investing in what we call undercapitalized entrepreneurs and communities. And me and my partners have been at this a little while, but it's probably about a year and a half ago when we said, "Look, this is getting real enough that we need to come up with a name, um, and we want to move beyond just naming it after our last names. Uh, we want to have a name that means something to us." and you know, given the thesis of our, our firm, you know, I had been doing a little bit of reading uh, at the time about the, the Civil War. And right at the end of the Civil War, uh, General Sherman issued an order called Special Field Order 15. And it famously promised uh, 40 acres on a mule to the former slaves that had been following the Union Army down the coast of South Carolina, Georgia, uh, and into Florida. And, you know, for us, it stands for this idea that to fully participate in capitalism, you need capital. Uh, that was understood 150 years ago when land was a primary source of capital. It is still true today. And so, and it really goes to the mission of what we're trying to solve for here at, at O15 Capital Partners. Thanks for sharing that. Paul, you are also a co-founder of a similar mission here. A fund that you guys have is called the New Commonwealth Racial Equity and Justice Fund, NCF. And I learned that it strives to address systemic racism and racial inequality whilst fostering inclusion, representation, opportunity, and prosperity for Black, Latino, and Indigenous communities in Massachusetts. The first time I heard about NCF was, um, you mentioned it at a live company webinar back in 2020 when I was hosting. And at that time, it was still in its early stages, of course. When I came up with the idea for this particular episode, I immediately thought of that moment and looked you up and researched what NCF is all about. And then I learned that the idea came from a Zoom call two weeks after the loss of George Floyd. And in learning this fact, the first thing that came to mind for me was if anyone needs an example of many leaders from different companies coming together with a heart-led shared mission and quickly springing into action to walk the talk, this would be a wholesome and inspiring example of that. Can you share that story with us and what you all did after that call to make this happen? Thanks, Pam. Um, so NCF was born out of um, that summer of 2020, where many of us were frustrated around the continual um, uh, targeting 
uh, that was happening in our communities and the continual violence and trauma that our uh, community faces. And we came together, 19 of us, uh, black and brown executives, and said enough is enough. What can we do? And we knew that we had enough networks, uh, resources, and the ability to put together something that was going to help us disrupt racism. And those was uh, the new Commonwealth Fund form. Initially, our goal was to raise $20 million towards fighting uh, racism and inequality by funding primarily Black and Brown entrepreneurs, not-for-profit leaders. And since then, we've raised $40 million and on our way to our $100 million goal, which if you think about it, it's a drop in the bucket for what is needed to really truly stem the tide of systemic racism and to right the wrongs that uh, this system that has been around for hundreds of years has the harm that has been able to inflict in our communities. Similar to Colin uh, and his partner in, in this effort, we looked at how undercapitalized not-for-profit leaders are, entrepreneurs are, artists in our communities are. And, you know, only 2% of philanthropic dollars go, less than 2% uh, of philanthropic dollars go to Black-led or Brown-led uh, organizations. And we wanted to do something about that. And so that has been one of the ways in which we felt we needed to contribute. And you're right. It was led, an effort led from the heart, but it was led by frustration. It was led by the what we saw as the lack of movement around this critical issue. And it all came to a boil that's during the summer of 2020. And we wanted to do something about it. And we didn't want to ask for anyone's permission or wait for anyone to do it for us. And that's the result of that effort. Been immensely proud of being connected to it. And we continue to grow the organization to make sure that we get those dollars out into the community that needs them as quickly as possible. So since then, we've been able to fund and support over close to 100 organizations. And we are in the process of continuing to do even more than that. That's awesome. Both of you are inspiring in this space and really great to be able to share these stories, right? For people to actually know that there's work out there. They want to, to learn more. They can look you guys up and, and see if they can actually contribute in some way. Um, now, at this point, it is loud and clear that there are challenges that Black entrepreneurs face in accessing capital. So let's get right into exploring what these challenges are so Colin, let's start with you. Can you share some of your observations in this area, specifically the barriers that you have observed and what investors can do to reduce them? Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, we launched you know, 15 capital partners with the thesis that there's this investable universe of entrepreneurs of color and entrepreneurs that are women that uh, have built great businesses, but for whatever reason have been missed by the investment community. And so we'd always thought that that was the case. And, you know, to be honest, it was only post George Floyd when we saw firms, kind of large firms starting to launch impact funds that we said, okay, it feels like the market is at least ready, right, yeah. to start investing behind these things. It didn't necessarily jive with our own observations uh, because, you know, big firms tend to raise big funds and want to write big checks. And our view was that the biggest opportunity wasn't uh, folks who were looking for a 50 or $100 million check, but uh, folks who were looking for, you know, 10 to $15 million checks that they built strong businesses, as you said earlier, largely bootstrap on their own. Uh, so when we launched our firm, we, we did a little bit of research just to see how big the market opportunity is. And by our estimates, there are a little over 20,000 businesses in the U.S. with more than 10 million in revenue that are owned by women or people of color. And so our view is that's a pretty big investable universe. Yeah. Funny thing is, when you talk to those entrepreneurs and you ask them what their business challenges are, 
the number one challenge that comes back is access to capital, in particular, access to credit. I saw a survey uh, not too long ago that said a third of Black entrepreneurs said access to credit is their number one business challenge. And so you've got this opportunity, right, where you've got businesses that are thriving, growing, need capital to grow, but they can't get access to the lifeblood of, of growth, which is in particular credit. Now, we think that there are some reasons for why that's occurred. We do think post-financial crisis, a lot of community banks left community banking in their stead. Um, investment firms were kind of stood up to be private lenders. But you know, as we talk to entrepreneurs, you know, they don't know to call XYZ Capital Partners in New York or Chicago. And the flip side, we think, is also true. The lack of diversity uh, particularly on the investment side of this industry, I think hurts everybody. And so I'll just give you the stats for private credit, but less than one half of 1% of private credit investment community committee members are Black. Just about 1% are Hispanic, only about 7% are women. And so you know, I've spent 20 years working with investors. Investors tend to invest in what they know and who they know. Mm-hmm. If you don't have any affinity with any of these groups, and no people from those groups are sitting on those investment committees, you can see how they would be missed easily. And so that's why we think this opportunity exists and why, why it frankly persists. But for us as an investment firm, we, we think we can do, it allows us to do two things at once. It allows us to do well from an investment return standpoint, because you've got these thriving businesses that need capital. And it also allows us to do some good. And so that's really how we've, uh, we, we've, we've, we've come at the, 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 the problem. I would say we're in the midst of raising our fund right now, but we've we've kept an active pipeline of deals since we launched. Mm-hmm. Um, since we launched in June, we have seen 80 deals, 80 transactions. These are regular way, lower middle market private credit businesses, right? So average check size they're looking for is $15 million. Average EBITDA of the businesses is about $8 million. These are thriving businesses. The difference in our portfolio is 66%, literally two thirds of those companies are diverse led. So a black or brown or woman owner or uh, management team. And so for us, it says, look, this, this opportunity has been there, but the need is real. And we can, we think we could uh, do well and do good. Those stats are very alarming and very informative too. Paul, what, what are your observations here as well when it comes to the challenges? If you could add on to some of Colin's perspective here. Colin just really described the problem, uh, the root of the problem. I think the lack of diversity when it comes to those who control the capital, whether it's private equity, venture firms, it's really a causal root of the issue, the lack of proximity, right? Like not knowing who these founders are, not knowing uh, or appreciating their business ideas, not appreciating the vitality of their businesses. It's, It's really an issue. And so part of the problem, it goes back to how are we attracting people to this industry? Where where are the Collins of the world that got the education, the training, the experiences, and the skills that allow him to be in a position now to launch his own PE firm? So what are we doing from an educational perspective and building those pipelines? What are we doing from an educational perspective to let people know that this is a career that you should consider? And by the way, by doing that, you can have the greatest impact. Right, because we know that businesses that are owned by females, black populations, actually are the ones who are hiring uh, folks in our communities and are bringing the economic vitality and those dollars are staying within those communities. I think that it's part of the challenge, just the, the lack of proximity, the lack of representation, 
and the lack of capital flowing into these great founders who have amazing ideas and products that they want to develop, but they don't have access. And to your point, calling the lack of credit and the lack of financial institutions that are willing to lend to these, to these entrepreneurs. You mentioned the impact, the economic impact of people of color also hiring people of color and creating these jobs. I actually came across data from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and it's stated that closing racial divides in entrepreneurship would support economic growth, as you've both articulated. But they also provided a distinct example on the economic impact, and it represented an opportunity to create an estimated 9 million additional jobs and adding nearly 300 billion in workers' income. However, I do think there are some listeners right now who, if they were provided you know, with this specific data, they would still question the space and maybe are still skeptical whether this is a movement or a moment. They might be asking, is this really a thing? Is there interest and is there traction? What would you say to that? I'll start. Um, I mean, I did leave my my whole job at Invesco to launch a firm yeah. uh, with, with that with that belief. And so, you know, and that that I came by that authentically. I, I'd say the, the real point is, can you raise money for an investment strategy? Can you convince institutional allocators that that you can source transactions and underwrite transactions and return their capital with some kind of an attractive return stream? And you know, we're still reasonably early in our fundraise, but our, the traction we're getting has been tremendous. We are likely to close the fund well above our target. And I think in many ways, we've kind of opened the eyes of not just institutional LPs, but the broader entrepreneurial community of, of what's possible. Now, we, we, look, we got a long way to go before we, you know, we truly proved it, but I think the early indications are, are good. The other thing I'll say is, the other thing we found is institutional limited partners, you know, these are, you know, pension plans and, and corporate treasuries, et cetera, have been looking for ways to invest for impact. It's it's a real thing. And I know there's a lot of debate about ESG these days and so forth, but but people really do want to find a way to do both. They want to get return while also having some impact in their communities. What hasn't been as clear is, is how to pull it off, um, who to invest with and, and how to do it. And and we're, we're looking to be part of that solution. I do think, and Paul raised this earlier, from an industry standpoint, we need to start way earlier from a talent standpoint. So investment management is one of those industries where it's largely an apprenticeship. You don't get on an investment committee and become an allocator or decision maker unless you've had 10, 15, 20 years of investment experience, which means you need to start fairly early in your career in order to end up at a place where you can be directing capital. And I do think this is everyone's burden, everyone's challenge, everyone's responsibility is to increase the people at the beginning of that funnel, making folks, people of color understand that investment management is an attractive career, uh, seeing people at the other end who've been able to be successful, I think is part of that, but also just, we got to solve the intake challenge because there's just not enough uh, diversity at the front end to have any diversity at all, which we don't at the, the back end when people are, are making investment decisions. Yeah. And so Paul, um, what's your take on, is this real? Is this a moment? Is this a movement? Any examples of why you believe this is great opportunity? Uh, with people like Colin at the helm, it is real. It's a movement uh, for sure. And there is opportunity. I am cautiously optimistic though. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, which is in 2020, a lot of companies made a lot of pronouncements and commitments around what they want to do and how they want to impact to the tune of about $60 billion. 
-hmm. of that 60 billion dollars two years later less i believe less than 150 million has been actually deployed and so you have to wonder why what's taking so long for the money to reach to be allocated and to have the impact that we needed to have so i think while there's a lot of goodwill and there's a lot of new awareness around the opportunities that are to invest by the way to make money into these businesses and these entrepreneurs the reality is that there's still a lot of caution as to how that money gets deployed as to how it gets structured et cetera et cetera there's still there's still this courting period right where these big institutional investors and or other private equity investors are sort of saying we need to get to know this space and we need to sort of form this relationship so i think yeah. This is still not happening fast enough. And so that's my only worry that two years later, you know, two and a half years later, we're still sitting here and this all that money that was pledged that's still not necessarily hitting the market. And this is exactly why I was inspired by your call to action with the 19 executives to form the NCF fund two weeks after George Floyd's um, unfortunate death. And you guys acted on it. You did something immediately. And that's inspiring because like you're saying, there's definitely a huge gap from what was pledged to what has actually been invested today. In your line of creating these opportunities for Black entrepreneurs and organizations that serve to empower the Black communities, what has been most rewarding for you? That's a great question. I think it all goes, for me, it all goes back to my belief that we are all created equal. We just not given equal opportunity. If given equal opportunity, if given equal access, we can be just as successful. What I'm encouraged by and what I am why I continue to do this work is because I believe that our community deserves to live healthy, to live happily, to have economic opportunity, to be able to invest into our communities to see our children, you know, run around and feel that the world belongs to them, that the world is their oyster. For me, it's a personal thing, right? So, so I want to see my two girls grow up in a world where they feel that they can be fully themselves and they can be as successful as, as possible. And I go back to, I'm an immigrant. I came to this country at the age of 17 and I truly, truly, truly believed that this was the land of opportunity and that there was nothing that I couldn't do. And the minute that I got here, it's one of the first things that I was told was that my opportunities or my safety or my achievement was going to be limited because of the color of my skin. And, and that really shocked me, bothered me. And this whole idea that this country, you know, would provide me with, with the platform and opportunity to, to be successful came to a little bit of a screeching halt. And then I had to inspect why. And so my personal ethos has always been do whatever it is possible mm -hmm. to make sure that you know this continues to be the land of opportunity for all not just for a few not just for the one percent but for all and and so what is it that we're doing to make sure that that we do that and that's why this work is so important absolutely that was very powerful paul now colin what is your why why do you keep doing the work that you do Paul captured it well. I have two sons and ultimately I'm doing it so that they have a chance for an even better life than the one I had. You know, my mother is, is was born right here in Georgia, 90 miles south of here uh, in Columbus. When my mother was born, she was the Jim Crow South. She went to segregated schools. All the stuff that people see on TV, the <laughs> black and white, she lived, 
her son now lives in the middle of Atlanta in a neighborhood that she and her brothers and sisters couldn't have walked through 50 years ago. My sons will hopefully live a better life than I have. So change does come slowly, but I do think part of the hope is that it does come. You do see it. And we're two years into my new venture. So far, so good. Every day is a little different. Sometimes some are much harder <laughs> than others. Some are really good, but the progress we're feeling and we're seeing it. And I do think this is a bit of an inflection point. You, you asked the question earlier, is, is this a, a moment or a, a movement? I've contemplated that question so many times. It's, it's hard to know in the moment, just because we're two, two and a half, three years in into yeah. this. So what I feel like is the first fundamental change. Like I, I'll only know in 10 or 20 years from now, but you know, at, at this point, it does feel like things are starting to change. They're changing very slowly. And I think that we could be part of the catalyst to move them along a bit faster, but it, it does feel like change is coming. I would have to agree there. I'm a migrant like you, Paul, came at 17 as well from Zimbabwe. And my mom was born and raised in colonized Zimbabwe. And at the time that was called Rhodesia uh, by the British. Very similar experiences there where being a minority in certain situations. And moving here to the U.S., obviously for opportunity as well. And so creating a platform like this is something that is dear to my heart as well. And seeing ways I can close the gap, financial literacy gap, information gap, resource gap in some way. So I really do appreciate you both for coming on and sharing your skills, your resources and knowledge and I really want you both to know that your representation in this industry inspired me. This is the reason why I'm sitting here with both of you. You inspired me two years ago, and I feel like your voices truly matter and are impactful. And I look forward to witnessing your legacies growing and continuing. Thank you both for taking the time to be here with the ESGM Law community. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. This was ESG Unlocked, brought to you by ISS Corporate Solutions. And as your host, I appreciate you listening in and encourage you to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues, as our mission is to help you better understand the ESG landscape. And please subscribe to get an alert for new episodes and follow ISS Corporate Solutions on LinkedIn for webinars and insightful thought leadership pieces as we continue to explore and unlock the value of ESG.